You're listening to Make and Multiply, a podcast devoted to equipping the members of Emmaus Road Church to make and multiply disciples of Jesus Christ in the city of Sioux Falls. The people of Emmaus Road are committed to regular rhythms of gathering and scattering. We gather corporately in worship on Sunday mornings. We gather in missional communities and discipleship huddles, and we scatter throughout our city where we want to give every resident of Sioux Falls repeated opportunities to hear and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hello, everybody. You're listening to another episode of Make and Multiply. My name is Matt Gruden, and I have the joy of serving as one of the pastors at Emmaus Road Church. I'm joined this morning with my dear friend, Ryan Chase, the senior pastor at Emmaus. And so just this past week, we introduced a new sermon series, That's right. uh, which is awesome, the book of James. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I think it'd be fair to say, and Ryan, you can, you can come in if you want, but mm-hmm. I think it's fair to say this is one of the more contested books in the New Testament mm-hmm. for, for many reasons. Um, its message can yeah. often feel, you know... <laughs> it's contested, right. and also just the very nature of it being in the Bible can be contested. So you had mentioned in your sermon this past week, Ryan, um, just as you introduced the book to us uh, by using the greeting in James 1.1, 1, 1, uh, just kind of what to expect in this book. And you had introduced kind of a, an idea of, this is a contested book, mm-hmm. um, and just had kind of on the offhand said, well, not the moment right now in preaching to dive deep into things like contribution in canonicity and all the rest. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought it'd be good. To, okay, let's take that time right now and, and try and serve our people by, by doing kind of a deep dive into the book of James and uh, exploring some of those questions. Yeah, absolutely. I think, and I think you would agree, there are satisfying answers to these right. questions. It's not just a, well, we just hope this to be true. Yep. I think there are satisfying explanatory answers yes. to this question. So where to begin? I think, why don't we review a little bit, Ryan, a little bit on... Who wrote the book of James? You had mentioned it and kind of walked through it in your sermon, but let, maybe pick that apart and then we'll go from there. Yeah, so spend some time on that because in that greeting in verse 1, James introduces himself, a uh, very brief but significant uh, description of who he is, but he just gives his name, James, and James is a fairly common name in that time period. Uh, even lot. within the New Testament, there are several lot of people. Lot, lots of Jimmy's. So, uh, <laughs> lots of people in the New Testament named James. So uh, on Sunday in that sermon, kind of walked through who are some of those Jameses and why can we rule out a few of them? Some because they're very minor or obscure mm-hmm. and certainly wouldn't have had the kind of standing and authority in the church to write an authoritative letter that the church came to receive as scripture. Which, keep that in your back pocket yeah. for later, because that's really important. Yeah. Okay, keep going. Yeah. Um, especially not with such a brief introduction. You know, mm-hmm. if somebody was going to, like, even James, the the lesser or the minor of the, because there, there were two disciples named James, one of them is less well known. If, you know, obviously as one of the 12, that's a big deal, but he probably would have had to say more about himself in his introduction mm. to clarify which James he was, especially knowing that there are other Jameses around uh, who were more well-known. And so, you know, to keep it brief, the the two most likely candidates would be James, the brother of John, who was in that inner circle, Peter, James, and John. But he was martyred under King Herod pretty early on in probably the early 40s, maybe 44 AD, um, which is likely before this letter was written. Close, right. but just before... Um, so that leaves James, the brother of Jesus, and we have lots of evidence in the New Testament that that James, the brother of Jesus, 
was uh, a member of the apostolic community, though he wasn't a member of the 12 disciples. He was certainly part of um, the church council in Jerusalem. He was among the elders. He's listed in Acts 15, Acts 21, Galatians. Um, Paul has, I didn't quote this on Sunday, but in Galatians 2.9, Paul makes a comment. He says, uh, and when James and Cephas and John, James and Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So Paul is saying, I I recognize these guys were the pillars in Jerusalem. And he mentions James, the brother of the Lord there. So that's a brief case for why traditionally through church history, that has been the predominant view that this is the James who mentions himself simply as James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's that authorship that's it's vital. It really is. Um, because it plays into why does this book belong in the canon? Right. Um, as you just said, we can write off some of the other Jameses out there because they did not have the authority, or the position, in order to write such a thing that would then be accepted by the church, accepted and received by the church, which yeah. are words that are critical as we get to. Yes. Um, and so James being in a position that he was, not, and interestingly, as you said in the opening, he doesn't list his biological right by being so related to Jesus. Right. The connection to Jesus is not by blood, it's by faith. Mm-hmm. And so he he has a posi- he has the position that he has because he belongs. He's a slave of God yeah. and of the Lord Jesus Christ, not because he's the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's that positioning, that that faith that probably saw him rise up in the ranks if you will, mm-hmm. to a place where as you mentioned in Acts 15, one of the most pivotal moments in church history. Yes that he's presiding over that council. Mm-hmm. He's the one who is kind of the Elrond, if you will, at the council, who's just kind of riding over it, riding herd, taking, you know, yeah. all right, Paul, what do you have to say? Peter, what do you have to say? Judaizers, what do you have to say? And then he's the one who then says... And he sums it all up. He sums it all up and commissions the writing of the letter yep. to go out to the churches that then Paul and Barnabas and Silas and, and John Mark will go and take. And so he he, he is at least by the apostolic, as you said, by the apostolic team, if you will aware, like he is perceived as an authority. Yeah. So that matters as we consider who's writing. Um, Absolutely. Because it speaks to then the, the power of his, of his, of this canonicity, which I think maybe we should go to next. Yeah. I've got a great quote from Daniel Doriani who wrote uh, an expository commentary on James and in his introduction, he tackles some of these questions that um, have been around for a long time about the book of James. And he just gives a helpful explanation, kind of why it matters. He says the theological and moral value of James rests not upon the affection with which Christians receive it, Mm. but upon its origin in divine inspiration and its status in the canon. So he's making that important point. Um, James is widely loved by ordinary everyday Christians, has been for for so long, um, because it's practical and it's got vivid imagery. And um, it's one of the most quoted books in the New Testament among Christians, even though scholars wrestle with some of these other questions that we're we're getting into, and so Doriani makes the point. So it's it's well loved by Christians, but that alone doesn't give it its authority. It really depends on it. Are these words from God? And he says these are the issues at stake in any defense of the authorship, the style, or content of James. The critical charges and replies to them are far more involved than he gives a brief survey here. But once accusations are presented, some of the faithful must answer them. 
and the church must at least know that they have done so convincingly, then all can profit from the theology and the ethic of James. Mm. So he's making that point. There are criticisms that come up, and and this should not be a surprise to us that the Word of God is questioned and critiqued at every turn. This is not new. We we always refer back to the garden when the serpent says to Eve, did God really say? You you can just recognize the voice of the serpent in that the tone of that question. It's one thing to say, what did God say? We want to get that right and clear and understand that, interpret it rightly, apply it rightly. But to ask with an, you know, a humble, submissive spirit, what did God say so we can understand it and apply it, is a very different question than a suspicion or a skepticism that's mm-hmm. always saying, did God really say? Mm. And then rejecting everything. So you know, unbelieving critics, at every turn, they're finding some reason to undermine the authority or the authenticity of every book of the Bible. They question every passage in the end. And the, so, and the main reason, I think, coming from why, why, does it, why do people do that is because if you, if you can show that it originated not in the Spirit, but originated just in James' yeah. musings, then you can write it off. You, you can, can dismiss you it. You can say, you know what? I'm not going to count it all joy. Right. That's <laughs> you, know, right. you know what? I'm, I'm not going to do that. If, thanks, James, but no thanks. Yeah. That, that's why passages like... Second uh, Peter 1, uh, 20 and 21, or especially in 21, where mm-hmm. Peter says, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. It never found its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy That's Spirit. Right. That, that is where we derive a lot of our meaning from the doctrine of inspiration. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what do we mean in 2 Timothy three sixteen, where it says, all scripture is breathed out by God. God breathed yeah. and is useful. It means that all the words of Scripture are God's words. Mm-hmm. Yes, they were written by people mm-hmm. who, like James, had a context. He had an audience. He had a he had a point to make and had a style unique exactly. to James, different than Paul, different than Mark, different than all the rest. Mm-hmm. But yet, it it is the Spirit who worked through those to cause the his words to be written. It's, but that's right. It's different than like a dictate theory, where it's like he yep. just heard the words in a dream and then just copied them down. No, he wrote. As he, well, as Peter says, for we know that, uh, but men wrote, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. That's right. So they just wrote, and God, through his work, through the Spirit, brought his words through. Mm -hmm. And so that when we read James, we're reading a real historical person who wrote a real letter, Mm -hmm. and we should, but because they're not originating in him, Mm -hmm. in his own will, but from the Spirit... They're actually God's words. Right. That's why we Which gives care. them the authority of God himself. Exactly. It's not like you, you were mentioning um, counterfeit, the FBI yeah. story. Yeah, go ahead and tell that one. Yeah, well, I think all of this is uh, in that realm of the question of what we call the canon. Right. The canon is the list of books that belong in Scripture. And so the question is, how do we know which books belong? We've right. got 66 books in the Bible. Why... 66, not 65 or 67. Why those particular 66? And this is important to have some familiarity with because um, if you just take it by faith initially, that that's totally fine, but you can get the wrong idea that like somehow scripture just descended down mm. out of the sky or that, you know, to really be the words of God, this just had to come in some miraculous way, just lowered down to us. And like a like a Joseph Smith and right. the the angel Orani, where it's just like he had this right. vision and he wrote it down and he's the only one who can translate it. And yeah. so he is the only one who knows exactly what was said, right? This is not that kind of revelation. Right. And and so 
critics sometimes, you know, will raise this charge against the Bible, like, well, that was written by man. Or another related charge is, well, humans decided which books are in the Bible. And the implication there, there's kind of a missing premise in that argument. The implication is humans can't, God can't speak through humans. Or if God does speak through humans, other humans can't recognize that that's from God. And really our conviction is, the question at the root is, can God speak? Is he able to speak to humans, through humans, in human language? And we talked about some of these things when we walked through the statement of faith and we talked about the doctrine of scripture, the authority and inspiration of of scripture. But but that's the real question. Can God speak and can his people recognize? And Jesus himself said in John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice. So we shouldn't be surprised that the people of God have recognized the voice of God in spirit-inspired words Hmm. delivered through the spirit, through working through inspiring human beings, as you just described. Um, There's a quote from J.I. Packer who says that the church no more gave us the canon of of scripture than Sir Isaac Newton gave us the force of gravity. That's helpful. He's getting yeah. at that idea. Newton didn't create gravity. He didn't invent it. Mm-hmm. He observed it and described it, but it was already there. Mm-hmm. Likewise, um, you know, in, in response to that charge, well, the church, human beings decided centuries later which books were in and which ones were out. But well, they didn't take human words and turn them into God's words. And the right. illustration you were referring to, um, think about like, FBI agents or whichever agency is responsible for <laughs> vetting out, uh, you know, counterfeit money, uh, a government agent who's an expert in counterfeit currency has no authority to turn counterfeit money into real money just by some declaration. Like, right. well, this is monopoly money, but because I am who I am, I will declare that this is real money and now you can go spend it. No, he, all he has the authority to do is recognize whether the money is legitimate or not. And, and that's really what the church has done in church history, not turning mere human words into God's words, but mm-hmm. recognizing these words spoken through Paul or Peter or James, these are the very words of God. Mm-hmm. We're not making them into God's words. They are God's words. And we're, we recognize that because we recognize God's voice. We receive them as such. And so then, then we see really the, the church's reception of God's word is another one of God's works in right. the world. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, be, it, it takes on where Jesus says in John that my sheep hear my voice and they, they know me. Mm-hmm. They know me as the shepherd. So if the, if the, the church is the flock of God it, or the body of Christ, it in receiving it is hearing God's voice and responding, and right. which, is, which is, like you said, also an act of the Spirit yes. to open eyes to see and to recognize. Yeah. Um, I remember the the big thing back in like the the mid two thousands was um, the Da Vinci Code, right? right? And in Dan that Brown. claim, which you know, not a very good book in general, but you know, it's a lot of novels have been written about that time period and whatever, and which is great. But what fired everybody up was in the front page, the under the title page, it said based on true events, historically right. accurate. Um, and he in that book will critique the canonicity for everything you just said. And one one of the charges is the canon didn't come into existence until the Council of Nicaea, mm-hmm. where the Emperor Constantine essentially, through political motivations, maneuvered right. certain books to come to light yep. because it benefited him politically. Yep. Um, and I remember that just threw such a... That, that was a storm that hit the church because yeah, now we had to really ask and re-answer these questions. Yeah. Of why these books? Is for, that true? Right. And for a lot of Christians who never bothered with those things, which is okay, 
um, it, it could be kind of bewildering or mm. disorienting at first. Like, wait, what? What happened? <laughs> uh, but Dan Brown, the author of The Da Vinci Code, didn't make that up, but he did certainly popularize or, or mainstream right. that old critique, which is just not accurate history. Right. Um, the Council of Nicaea certainly didn't make the definitive list, and it was not the only time or the first time that Christians had been talking about which books are actually God's words and which ones are not. Right. That started long before Nicaea. While the apostles were all alive. Right. I mean, <clears throat> Peter even makes claim, oh, what is it? In, um, is it? Yeah, at the end of Second Peter. Second Peter, yeah. He, he, he makes the claim that like, and you guys know of Paul's writings, which are hard to understand. Yes. <laughs> just, just like, thank you, Peter. Yeah. Yes. And, and he, and Peter, the significant words are Peter says there, um, which unstable people twist mm-hmm. to their own purposes like the as they do the other scriptures. scriptures. And so he, yeah. Peter, a contemporary of Paul, lists Paul's writings, his letters, along with the other scriptures. Mm-hmm. So already at that time, the church is recognizing these words are not mere human words. Yeah. These are God's words, which Jesus said would happen. He told his disciples, I'm, I'm going to give you the spirit, and he's going to remind you of everything I've said, and you're going to speak on my behalf. And so that's exactly what happened. And you have also these, these other historical books, like the Gospels and the Book of Acts, which tell a story. And so there were other books there are other gospels of people who were living at the time that why aren't those included in the canon? Well, there was something about those four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, particularly that were either direct eyewitnesses or direct disciples of the eyewitnesses. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, and they were writing and it was being circulated at a time where people were alive Mm -hmm. to be able to say, Oh, that's what happened. Or, Oh, that's not what happened. Right. It, It was in the quote eyewitness period. So another critique that's often thrown is that, well, we don't have any... The, the Bible wasn't actually written. These The New Testament wasn't written until the 2nd, 3rd, 4th century and by people claiming to be John, people right. claiming to be Peter and Paul and so forth, um, which we just have... We have architectural evidence that, we, that dates um, the manuscripts of New Testament writing all the way back within a decade yeah. of when it's said to have happened. And that, that's critical because that means that there existed in circulation um, copies of these letters mm-hmm. in a time period where people were alive who were also eyewitnesses mm-hmm. who would say, oh yeah, that's what happened. Mm-hmm. And some would say, oh wait, no, they, that's not what happened. They could corroborate or, or falsify. It's yep. like writing a biography of Lincoln and pu- and publishing it while he's still alive. Mm-hmm. And he and the others around him could say, that's an accurate one or not. Yep. Um, but if you post, you know, if you write a biography of Lincoln, um, now you're relying on witnesses who were right. there at the time and you can, and they can't speak for themselves because um, yep. they're dead. Exactly. <laughs> and, and that it's helpful when you're reading the gospels that there are mentions of people and names like, you know, so-and-so who is the father of such and such. Um, and when we read that today, that has very little meaning to us, Right. but it, it's a lot like when you're writing an academic paper today and you cite your sources, you mm. put a footnote in, here's where I got this. When you mention, okay, hey, this guy carried Jesus' cross. He's the father of Alexander and Rufus. Who are Alexander and Rufus? Well, in the time when Mark wrote that, you could go check with Alexander and Rufus and ask, can you tell me the story? What did your dad do? Yeah. Oh yeah, he carried the cross for Jesus. I'm yeah. <laughs> yeah. His crucifixion. So you're citing your sources. That, that's what's going on there. And it also, you know, getting back to authorship, 
um, you know, the New Testament, the, the uh, expository, the, the letters, the epistles are written by people to people. Right. And there's people that, there's real people. So for instance, um, Paul at the end of Romans, when he, when he lists all these real people, mm-hmm. the, that is putting stakes into the historical time timeline where right. those, did those people exist or not? Who are they? Um, and that all comes from him actually writing to people. So yeah. when we get to the book of James, one of the confusing parts about the book of James, or, or one of the reasons why it's tossed into kind of this confusion is because it's what's called a general epistle or a Catholic or universal epistle, mm-hmm. meaning it doesn't have a specific audience. Mm-hmm. Um, you think of Paul, I mean, the, the books of the New Testament, like Romans, Corinthians, Colossians, those are all titled the way they are because they are written to the churches in yep. those regions. And you know that from the openings where Paul, an apostle, to the church in Corinth, to the church in whatever. And then That's he right. writes to them. James, as you preached through last week, in his opening, he has no to other than to the diaspora. The, the 12 tribes of the dispersion. It's, so it's, it's broad. He's throwing a wide net. Mm-hmm. And so there's a. it's harder to get your arms around exactly who he's talking to. But in yep. a lot of ways, it really opens it up to, well, he's really talking to everybody. Yeah. <laughs> he's talking to us. Yeah. Exactly. And, and the scholar commentator Douglas Moo makes the point that um, sometimes people overplay or misunderstand the status of James in the early church, thinking that James was rejected by many Christians. And he points out, it's not that James was rejected, it's more like James was neglected. And he's got this great quote where he says, very few early Christians who knew of James ever dismissed it. Those mm. who knew it quoted it quoted it authoritatively, accepted it, loved it. Um, but it was one of the more neglected books in the early church and likely partly because, like you just explained, because of the general nature of the audience. And in particular, James being written to the 12 tribes of the dispersion, while that applies to the church as a whole, and I made that case that you know this is addressed to the church, this is for us, this letter's mm-hmm. for us. That's right. Um, James's particular audience was likely Jewish Christians who had been persecuted in Jerusalem, where James was a leader in the church, and then when they're dispersed outside of Jerusalem, and they're spread out throughout Palestine and Syria, and he's writing to them to pastor them in a new, bewildering situation in life, and he's reminding them to be stable and steadfast and hold firm and continue to grow in wisdom and make progress in Christ. Those Christians in those churches, those churches probably disappeared pretty early on Hmm. in Syria and Palestine after the fall of Jerusalem in Hmm. AD 70 and some other uprisings that happened later, which means this letter may have been kind of neglected or lost for a time to other churches. It obviously was not lost completely, but it it does give some context as to why it didn't feature as prominently. And another point Moo makes that's helpful just to, you know, why was James more neglected? Um, There were some major theological controversies, debates yes. um, that s- sprung up in the early church around you know doctrinal issues, um, heresy, false teaching. So a lot of Paul's letters are responding to mm-hmm. false teaching, and mm-hmm. he's saying, here's how, here, here's the tradition we received, we passed on to you, here's the truth, so silence these things and pay no attention, or like attention Col- to those things. Or like in Colossians, where Paul mentions about Jesus, that he is the firstborn of creation. Yeah. Okay, what does that mean? Does that mean he's a created thing? He's just right. the most supreme created thing? So, the, the, like you said, the early church is really interested in 
fighting out and showing how the scriptures, which they've, they're in the process of recognizing, what picture do they present about God and where does Jesus fit in? So they're, they're, they're hammering out the Trinity. Yep. They're hammering out the church. Mm-hmm. They're hammering Christology. out the person and work of Jesus. Who is he? Yep. Um, and so and that, those that are explains not things. Yeah. major themes or themes at all in the book of James, which means James wasn't really central in those debates. Again, it doesn't undermine its status as scripture or spirit inspired. It just means the church was really focusing. And we know how this goes. This happens in our day when you think of like, what are the current issues and debates? Um, you know, transgenderism is something, if you go back hundreds of years in the church, people will be like, you're dealing with what? <laughs> but it does drive us to particular parts of scripture that deal with biblical anthropology and manhood and womanhood mm-hmm. and sexuality. So those become a big focus in response to, well, what are the current issues, the current mm-hmm. debates? So I think some of that's helpful for understanding yes. James in the early church. So I guess all of that, Ryan, which is, for me, it just strengthens that this book, we ought to pay attention. Um, these are the words of God to us. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe moving into more of the themes now, as you, you spelled this out really well in, our, in your sermon, so I don't want to re-preach it, but... Um, what are some of the major themes of the book of James? Like you, you mentioned, and why is this so beloved by the everyday Christian? And why, as we, I mean, part of the reason we just talked about, it stumps the scholars mm-hmm. and the theologians, and a lot of pastors don't really want to preach it because it, of things. So maybe let's, let's hit a little bit of that and then just answer the question, why James now? Yeah. Well... James is an incredibly practical book. Uh, I mentioned this on Sunday. There are over 50 imperatives or commands Mm. in just over 100 verses, which is the highest concentration of commands in any book in the New Testament. So so James is just full of imperatives. Um, Starting out the text, you're going to be preaching uh, James 1 verse 2, Command, count it all joy. That's right, my right brothers, off the jump. When you meet trials of various kinds. Um, so it's a very practical book, and it's interested in applying theology to life, to living it out. And that becomes a huge theme when James gets into the relationship between faith and works mm. uh, and how genuine, living, active, functioning faith is always lived out. It's demonstrated. It's discernible. So I, I think yeah. that's a huge theme, even in the other places where James is not specifically talking about faith and works. He's always applying mm-hmm. theology to life. Mm-hmm. So here's how it relates to your conflict and your relationships, and here's how it should come out in your tongue, and here's the nature of true religion, being mindful of caring for the orphans and widows, and here's how it relates to your oath-taking and mm. um, to your commitments and your plans for the future. And so just, he's applying truth and applying theology in all of life. And, and, and that's really needed. Um, you know, one of the reasons James is contested moving beyond the early church, the, the early church accepted James as scripture. Um, we can go way back, you get down in the weeds in that history, but James came under scrutiny again during the time of the reformation, mm-hmm. particularly from Martin Luther. Yeah who most famously, he's always, just that line is quoted, called James an epistle of straw. (laughs) Um, He he didn't ultimately reject it from the canon, but he did say, I've got this quote here, um, 
he, he ended up saying, I, I cannot include him among the chief books, though I would not prevent anyone from including or extolling him as he pleases, for there are otherwise many good sayings in him. But mm. for Luther, whose main thing theologically was justification by faith alone, he he really struggled with James, who specifically says, so you see that a man is not justified by faith alone, right. <laughs> but by his works. And he's remember, Luther, what, what was his setting? He, he's sitting in a monastery <laughs> sitting in a you know medieval church of where people are requiring you to pay certain amounts to get into purgatory to get like he's living in this works based in a context ex- in yeah. a context where you could see his reaction to then hear James like James you're not helping <laughs> would you sit down let's go to Paul right you, you can see you can understand with Luther it's not like he was trying to yeah, the battle he was fighting right the Theological distortions, mm-hmm. false teachings, the corruption in the Roman Catholic Church in his day, um, the the gospel of salvation by grace through faith in Christ, which had been distorted and, and buried. Um, it, yeah, it inclined him toward Paul's letters, and that gave him ammunition for that battle. Mm-hmm. He he viewed James a little bit more like, this is not helping. I, th- I think Do you have that, that quote... Um, you had sent me that I think kind of captures um, it, that that makes sense in those days. Oh, here, I, I've got it. When faced with legalism, with the attempt to base salvation on human works, Paul needs to be heard as he was so powerfully at the time of the Reformation. Yes. But when faced with quietism, with the attitude that dismisses works as unnecessary for Christians, James needs to be heard as he was equally powerfully in the time of the Wesleys. That comes from D.A. Carson and, yes. and Doug Moo. And, and I think that's, that's just it. So quietism um, or a pietism mm-hmm. has an overemphasis on kind of the internal devotional feelings of the heart and right. thoughts of the head right. that don't necessarily come out of our hands in any kind of works. And so there can be uh, a swinging of the pendulum too far where by emphasizing salvation by grace through faith, apart from our works, as Paul says, then people become skeptical of works at all. And the way we see this fleshed out is the misunderstanding that legalism, essentially obedience is legalism. Any, any talk of commands or obeying God is legalistic. And that's just not true. Hmm. Um, there are works that come from faith. There are legalistic works, an attempt to earn or merit righteousness, right. forgiveness from God. But then there are works that come from faith. Because I trust God, I do what he says. And that's not legalism. Right. And, and that's one reason I think James is so crucial. So it's, it, it deals with you know, what we would recognize the danger of um, antinomianism, mm-hmm. uh, which means against law. Right. And so again, it, there, there can be a, pr- a prominent view in the church that kind of pits the gospel against God's law mm. as, those, as though those are two contrary opposite things, uh, when the reality is it, it's by God's grace that we're saved and it's by his grace that we are trained mm-hmm. to live godly lives. Yes. And James helps us with all of that. He does. And he helps give balance to, he, he helps, this is why James, not only because they are the words of God, but the benefit and the effect of having James in the canon is to ground us That's right. in actual real life, um, that the commands in James like all the commands in the New Testament, are not just to be me- mentally assented to, like, mm-hmm. yes, I agree, but to actually experientially be lived it out and then to experience now, today, 
the effect of obeying and living in Christ. Yes. I mean, this is not a new thing. It's also what Jesus says in multiple gospels of you will know a tree by its fruit. Mm-hmm. And so he demands also, Jesus told in that same context in Luke, the next parable is the story of the, um, the builder. Uh, does he build on a foundation of stone or on sand? And he, the, the correlatives there are not uh, the people who build on sand are unbelievers and the people who build on rock are the believers. No, the, the correlative, he says, this is the man who builds on the rock is the one who hears my words and does them. Mm-hmm. The other, the people who built on the sand heard the words and just and didn't do it. Didn't do it. They, there was a quiet. They may time. have even nodded their head in agreement. Right. This, oh, that's nice. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Amen. But to actually exp- that that's why your your phrase of like James is an earthy mm-hmm. earth. It's it's a flesh and bone kind of book. Yeah. I just think that that serves us in a world that has lost any touch with reality. Yeah. It helps ground us back into the earth and the world that God created. Mm-hmm. And this, this is his world. This is our father's world. And so he, and he calls us to live in it in a certain way. And by his spirit, he enables us to walk in his ways. And so yeah. I just, I think our prayer is that this book would encourage and get stuff done yeah. in the lives of the people of Emmaus Road Church. Right. Sanctification. Um, James himself says, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that's it. If if theology, it, it's actually impossible as embodied spirits um, to do anything spiritual without doing something in the world. Right. I mean, even if you're just gonna meditate and think about God, you gotta go somewhere. You, you yeah. You you are gonna be sitting somewhere, mm-hmm. and your brain is gonna be firing. Like if they hooked up. Whatever they do, <laughs> they to did a an brain. MRI. They'd see electrons. Yeah, and... Yes. So, so you are engaging a physical brain, even in that thought of meditating and thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, same with praying. Um, oftentimes, our prayers are actually audible. We're speaking out loud. We're using our tongues and our vocal cords. But even if you're just praying in your mind, again, neurons are firing in your brain. And so, we just because we are embodied souls, um, our theology can never just remain kind of in this ethereal realm. Right. It's got to come out, got to come out our hands. So that's why I love that phrase, theology with calluses. James helps us do that. Yes, very good. So hopefully this this helps, encourages um, those of you who are listening. And um, it'd, be, it'd be just a good practice to read through the book mm-hmm. multiple times as we go through the sermon series, just to, to see where these all, where, where James is going, mm-hmm. um, why he says what he says, just kind of you know, get the lay of the land. And maybe that's a good thing to do with your family, to do yes. uh, with your wife or your husband, to do uh, in your gospel communities. Um, just a good practice of, of reading this book over and over again. And that's why we put out the preaching plan as well, so you can see what mm. passage is coming up and just even, you know, read those few verses going into Sunday. So you're familiar with it, you're thinking about it, meditating on it, preparing for that sermon when we just receive the word. Because as James says... We want to be hearers yes. and doers of the word, not just hearers That's only. Right. And we trust that God, in His providence, has given this word for us right now That's in right. our season. So we're trusting in Him. Ultimately, we we as pastors, we have nothing to say. We have mm. no unique, true. novel thing that could be said. So our aim is to open up the gold mine that is that is James and show it to the people of God, so that they might trust Him more, uh, rely on Him more. Uh, and and actually have tangible footholds 
and, and, and things to fight the fight of faith That's with. Good. So uh, hopefully you're encouraged and until next time. Yes. Thanks for listening to Make and Multiply. If you have questions about anything related to discipleship huddles or missional communities or gospel fluency, you can reach out to your missional community leader. And if you're not yet plugged into gospel community at Emmaus Road, visit us online at EmmausRoadSF.com.